Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How are you holding up? Forecast for today. Clouds of virus raining down on most of the United States. Jesus fuck. My God, man. What a nation of dumb shits. Tremendous. Let it, let it rip. Let it burn. It's literally in your, you're soaking in it. What a nation of dumb shits. And look, you know, plenty of smart people are dumb shits. I don't know what it is. Things get slacked. Things are inconvenienced. Plague fatigue is a real thing. We just want it to be done. People get sloppy and then people get sick and people die. And, you know, I'm not and I'm guilty of it. I'm not coming from some higher plane here. Today on the show, I talked to John Densmore. He was a door. He was the drummer for the doors. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, written a couple books about his time in the doors. He's got a new book out called The Seekers, which is about the artists who inspired him. He's also taken a stand against commercialism and has prevented the doors music from being used to sell products. We'll talk about that a bit. Uh, I know, uh, the remaining door is not thrilled about that, but, uh, but noted, you don't, you don't hear that much anymore. They, yeah. The people have integrated, adapted, assimilated into commercialism and somehow justifying it. Is there any selling out anymore? If you do it in a cool way, I mean, that's been the way it's at for a while. Now we're in this new shift. It's like, it's not so much about doing whatever it takes to, uh, to, to make a buck or sell a product as long as you keep your shit together and look cool doing it. Now it's literally about, you know, managing your brand, managing your own product, getting out there. Yeah, right. Selling you and then having the people come to you so you can sell their shit. Hey, man, will you sip on this while you talk to your fans? Hey, man, will you wear this while you talk to your fans? Hey, man, could you sing this tune while you talk to your fans? Look at this. Could you rub this on your face while people are enjoying you talking? Could you eat four of these at the same time you rub this shit on your face while people are talking? Make it a show. Make it a show called I'm eating four things and rubbing shit on my face for a half hour. Brought to you by the shit on the face people. Yeah, man. There's no selling out anymore. What is going on? The movie that I'm in, Stardust, uh, the David Bowie film I did with Johnny Flynn, is getting, you know, I would say mixed reviews, but uh, my mother hasn't watched it. Apparently because um, she set out to watch it the other night. And she goes, I don't think I watched the right one. I don't think I, I was, it was, what do you mean? Was I in it? She's like, I didn't see you. What was it at the beginning when they were a bunch of British, uh, you know, 70s people dressed like that? And she's like, no, it, it seemed to be like another time, like a primitive time, like 100 years ago or something. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know. I watched for like 10 or 15 minutes and I didn't see you in it. What are you watching? Stardust. Is there another Stardust? I guess there is. There is another Stardust, apparently. And my mother watched a nice portion of it before she realized <laughs> it wasn't about David Bowie. It's some sort of weird fantasy movie from like 10, 15 years ago. I don't even know what it's about, but it took her 10, 15 minutes before she's like, this doesn't seem right. 
And she's got all her marbles, my mother. But she waited it out. Maybe this was some artful approach to the uh, to the David Bowie story that starts off 100 years ago. They were going way back. <laughs> oh, God. I think I got her on the right track. I don't understand. I, I, I watched the movie. You're not in it. It was like uh, from it was like the old days. I don't what I don't know what is that am I watching the wrong movie yes yes I wish my dad a happy birthday I left him a message I didn't talk to him he's 82 I think he's okay my biggest problem right now aside from fearing COVID I've decided as I will given that my primary relationship at this point in time is a black cat named Buster Kitten. Fucking Buster. So I've done this with all my cats at different points. Like he's acting weird. He's acting tweaky. I thought it was the full moon. Maybe there's a mouse in the house. Maybe there's a rat in the basement. Who the fuck knows with a cat? But I know he's acting weird. So I start focusing in, hyper-focusing on him. Buster, what's up? Buster, what's up? Are you okay, Buster? What are you doing there? Why are you sitting there? Where are you going, Buster? What's going on? That's not your regular place. Is that your new place? Do you not feel well? Why are you sitting like that? What's happening, Buster? And, you know, the cat's going to feel that. I mean, me just saying that to you guys made me a little stressed. And I don't know how I forget. I've been dealing with cats for almost 20 years of my own. I've been through a few. I've taken a lot of them. Like I, yeah, I took, I, fuck it, man. It's like, you don't know what cats. It's like, you know, one day they're, that, that's their place. Look, that's your place. I like that. You're going to, you're going to sit up there on the couch. That's your place, Buster. That's your place. How come you're not in that place anymore? Is this your new place? Are you going to be on this side of the couch now or the other chair? Why are you going to, oh, you're going to ruin that piece of furniture? And then you just stop after a few months and move on to another piece of furniture. Where are where? Oh, you're going to stay upstairs now. What you're going to sweep on the table? What's going on? Is this your new toy? Is this where you're going to stay? They switch it up. Are oh, you shitting on this rug now? Why is that? Why did that happen for a month? You don't fucking know. You don't know what's going on with them or how they make decisions. But they change. They do weird shit. They're fucking cats. I don't know why I forget that. But I'm like, I got to take him to the vet. I think he's breathing funny. Something wrong with him. I got to take him in. I haven't been to the vet since I left with an empty crate. With Monkey. Since I sent Monkey off. So I took uh, took Buster in to see Modesto over at um, Gateway. I've been going to Gateway Animal Hospital in Atwater here in L.A. for like 20 years. 18 at least. Used to take Boomer there, La Fonda, Monkey for their entire lives. I've taken ferals there that I trapped to get fixed. I've taken uh, a stray there to be put down. But Doc Modesto is the best. So I took Buster in because you guys, I don't know if you know, you know, Buster almost died when he was like two. He ate something stupid. I don't need, I'm not even sure what, but he went into full renal failure. He went fucking down. I had to like get him to an emergency vet. He was under observation for days, fluids, ultrasounds. He survived it and got perfect kidney function at the end of it. But I haven't had him checked out in two years. So I, there's a little bit of denial. That's how you know why people are selfish and stupid. We all do the denial trip. No one wants fucking bad news. And no one wants to be dis- inconvenienced. I understand. But it doesn't mean you're avoiding fucking reality. That's what it means. So the initial tests are okay. The test he took yesterday, I brought him in. His teeth are dirty. He's a little chubby. But the ultrasound does reveal he's probably working with one big kidney. And the smaller one might not be working at all. He might have a, a bum kidney in there and one big good one. But Doc Modesto's like, hey man, just like people, these cats can live for a long time with one kidney. He's been on the kidney food for a long time. Keep him on that. I'm even ready. I'm ready to snap into sub-Q fluids if I have to. I could give him sub-Q fluids just, just for fun. I got the shit over here. I've run a cat hospice before. Buster Kitten. He's acting weird though, man. Buster is acting tweaked. He might be just getting older. It seems, I don't know. He's acting like there's something out there. He's acting like there's another animal either in the house or near the house 
something's going on. A lot of smelling going on. A lot of like, uh, I know there's something right around here. It's right around here. Something's going on, man. And I'm going to sweep upstairs now. But aren't you a downstairs cat? Nope. This is where it's at now. This is what's happening. Deal with it, fucker. I'm obviously projecting a lot. So look, you guys, uh, John Densmore is a a drummer. He was a door. <laughs> His new book is called The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians and Other Artists. You can get it wherever you get books. He writes about my interview with Gary Shandling in the book, actually, as an example of people searching for truth and transcendence through their art. And we talk about that a bit. Uh, this is me talking to the drummer of the doors, John Densmore. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your your podcasts or so john how you feeling buddy uh, i got something i want to say what what the fuck mark <laughs> exactly what the fuck <laughs> i i got no answer for you i got no answer for you john can, can, can we get Agent Orange to step down so I can sign some books? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, I, I don't know if we're ever going to get him out of that fucking White House. Someone's going <laughs> to have to go in and get him. Boy, does he suck all the air out of a room or what? Out of the world. But like when you think back on you know your life, I mean, you, you know, during the the late 60s i mean what was the feeling around you know the chaos that that nixon was creating was it was it you were a younger man but did you feel it as menacing or was it better or worse it's the same although you know every night was uh, horrendous napalming and and, and so maybe that was worse but um i don't know I, my hatred of donald is amazing i mean Bush, you know, eh, yeah. but uh, I said to a friend of mine the other day, well, thank God Donald hasn't started a war. And my friend said he did the Civil War. I went, oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. so, so maybe yeah. Trump is the Vietnam War, which was a catalyst, difficult as it was, and, you know, as horrendous as all of this is now. Um, we did stop that war. The people stopped that war. And so I'm hoping, praying that we're just finally maybe going around the corner a little bit towards light and mm. there'll be some light for 10 years, I hope. I hope so, too. And where are you at? You in L.A. still? Um, yeah, I'm in Santa Monica where I was born and my mom was born here in 1904. But we're not native. No? Chumash Indians are the natives, first people. Where are you? Where's your people from? uh ireland oh yeah 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 but you've been in los angeles for the whole time you've seen the whole you know rise and fall and rise and fall again of uh of los angeles i mean i can't like i can't even imagine what when i see pictures of los angeles from the 60s and 70s it just looked fucking nuts i just got into town about an hour ago yeah yeah look around see which way the wind blows yeah yeah that was good yeah but where were you in New York? No, I grew up in Albuquerque. You know, I was you know I'm younger. I'm 57, and I you know I was born in Jersey, but most of a, I mostly grew up in Albuquerque. Yeah, I got a weird question. It's not really a trivia question, but it's just like I recounted a story 
that I'd read uh, in an oral history of punk rock uh, that Iggy Pop told in how the Doors inspired him to to sort of be who he is. And it was based on a show that you guys did. It must have been Ann Arbor or Detroit where Iggy went to see you guys and Jim did the entire uh, show like singing the songs like Mickey Mouse or in a weird voice and he wouldn't stop it. And the audience was getting furious and they were fucking like just mad as hell and he would not stop doing it. And Iggy thought it was the most amazing thing you'd ever see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that, but I'm sorry, Mark, my brain cells are not clicking on that one. <laughs> so, it, it, so it was that crazy to where something like that wouldn't stand out. <laughs> well, that the whole show... Uh, maybe a few uh, minutes yeah maybe maybe his memory's off a little bit maybe he a little a poetic license uh, sure so let's talk about this like the drive to to find truth and and the the sort of idea of what art is supposed to do seems to be something that you know you've always been obsessed with did you did you notice i quoted you doing yeah i saw that during shanling interview yeah exactly but like yeah. when you were like, you know, I like you know, the way you start is that you grew up in a creative house to a certain degree, huh? Yeah. You know, and OK, I got this idea. I would uh, do a tip of the hat to various musical icons who, right. who inspired me. And so I wrote a few chapters and then I thought, oh, you know, my mom, she encouraged piano and drums. So I'll write a chapter on her then. And I, and I thought, oh, let's be autobiographical. I'll stick it at the beginning of the book. Then it hit me a few weeks ago. And, oh, wait a minute. In the chapter on Elvin Jones, Coltrane's drummer, I talk about how to drummers and everyone that the first drum beat you ever heard was your mother's heartbeat in the womb. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And then I, well, of course, she's the first chapter. I was in her womb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, what I found sort of compelling was this idea that, you know, that you know, she she had some hardship in her life and some loss early on. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and that, you know, creative creativity that the, the sort of she was driven to paint and draw to sort of manage the grief. Oh, man, that's good. I don't know if I implied that, but that helps me. Yeah, I, I, that's why she painted till 94. She channeled it. And that's what the book is sort of about, you know. Whether you're a professional musician or uh, playing your piano in the closet and nobody hears it, you're still uh, getting in this zone that, that sort of feeds you and heals you. Well, when did you know for yourself? I mean, like when you were a kid and you were... You were uh... Because you also do a chapter with with a, a, a teacher of yours, uh, Fred Katz, right? Yeah. And but uh, but when you were a kid, I mean, w did you want to be an artist or did you want to just be a, a rock and roller? Because you know the girls liked it. <laughs> uh, no, I I fell in love with music at eight years old, playing the piano, and then I played in the all the bands in school and all that. But I never thought I would make a living at it. It's such right. a crapshoot, right? Right, you yeah, know? yeah. So that's why when I went to college, I majored in accounting, you know, money, accounting. Sure. And, and then I got D's and went, oh, okay, maybe I should major in something I like. Yeah. Yeah, music. But then I dropped out. Right. And then what happened? And then I got, oh, I got in this band and uh, prayed that it would pay the rent 10 years and um, I'm 70 six in a week and i'm still talking about this fucking band <laughs> <laughs> well you know it it happens with the guys that survive you know what i mean you yeah. you, you make yeah. that much of a cultural impact you, you're sort of i guess it's sort of an albatross but but you know there there's got to be some pride in it still right oh to totally i mean you know in my let's see first book i have three self-centered memoirs yeah uh well, that's the nature of the form. <laughs> I argue with Ray because he's like kind of selling the doors like Willie Loman a little too much. And he's giving me shit saying, John, well, it's better to be in the doors than not. And yeah. Said, well, of course. Of course, Ray. I have of the doors permanently etched on my forehead and I'm very proud of it. 
But, you know, I, I also get divorced and have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So <laughs> You have a life. <laughs> so, but, like, when you guys started, I mean, when did you find, I guess in looking at the book and, you know, having not read your other books, when did you sort of know that you were going to, you know, that what you were doing was not mainstream. It was not, you know, necessarily designed to make hits, but you know, that you were on the path of an artist and not just a rock band. When did you start seeing it as art? Was it something that happened in the doors with, with the, when you guys started taking more creative risks? Well, I mean, you know, we, we always wanted to become as popular as possible, possible, but, I guess in Jim's lyrics were these this this searching of uh, you know that I, I don't I was young I didn't understand at all really but it, it turned me on and I'm thinking about um, you talking to Gary and about truth is in the silence and in the void and and yeah. addiction you yeah. know Gary goes on to say it's it's addiction if you can't sit quietly. Pretty interesting stuff. Oh, addiction to distraction. Well, I mean, but, you know, how did you got, How did you survive? It seems that, you know, given the, what you were surrounded with, that somehow, you know, watching Jim, you know, kind of self-destruct, that somehow uh -huh. or another, the other three, you, you did all right. I, you know, you, it didn't seem like you guys uh, went down the same path much. Well, that was a teaching. Jim was always going too far. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I, uh, for years, would get asked the question, if Jim was around today, would be he be clean and sober? And and I always said, nah, he was a kamikaze drunk. And then a few years ago, wait, wait hold it. I know a lot of really cool people, uh, Clapton, Eminem. That it, yeah, of course he would. It's a different time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he he was an example, and I definitely uh, was more cautious. Certainly dabbled. But, yeah. Um, but you didn't. Road. You didn't want to die. <laughs> You know, Not yet. In, in order, I still don't. Good. In order to, <laughs> to, to know that you can break on through the other side, there's some party that's trying to get there, and uh, you don't know what that's going to require. So we assume that he's on the other side now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but like, it, it seems like this book that you kind of moved through. When did you first meet, uh, you know, Elvin Jones? Was he an influence on you when you were younger? Well, yeah. I, I as a teenager, stumbled into Shelley's manhole in Hollywood. Well, I was a jazz maniac. Like the chapter on Ray, uh, our initiation was sharing the jazz mentors we loved. Uh -huh. And so I was telling Ray I saw Coltrane many times. Where, in L.A.? Yeah with elvin and uh oh i just i didn't know i was seeing something that was really iconic but i knew there was magic i just knew it when how old were you when you were going to see them uh, 18 or something we're down in downtown where was that where were they playing the coltrane guys? In hollywood oh yeah I, I i went to tijuana and got my fake id that uh -huh. said i was 21 and and the the Door guy said, uh, "No, nah, it's fake, but you can come in." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, I, it just fed me. I couldn't believe this drumming. It was so primal. Yeah. And and, and a conversation with Coltrane and right. And I kind of got the idea to have a conversation with Jim. You know, so. But so, so you were, but 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 so from early on, you were kind of like your brain was able to lock into that kind of journey. You know, it takes a certain type of mind to to lock into Coltrane and jazz in general. But you were sort of you were a freak for it early on. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm a seeker. Uh, I, I was I've been blessed with. Um, I mean, all these chapters I saw. Uh, I was in Jamaica before reggae came to the States. Yeah. And so I, I, I got in there and, you know, I I saw Coltrane. Before he became giant. Do you and remember so, when Coltrane kind of started like going? Did, were you able to stay with him throughout the whole journey when he started getting yeah. really out there? You still dug it? Oh, oh yeah, most definitely. Because he, I knew his journey from bebop to uh, cool jazz with Miles yeah. to his own quartet. And then his own quartet went further out. So I, I was... I I go anywhere with him because yeah. you know. And did you you got to talk to Elvin Jones? Yeah, I I um 
I then saw him at Royce Hall, uh, and then I went up to the stage uh, because, you know, it's not like rock. Yeah. It wasn't a Berlin wall. You right. could just go up there. And and I I just listened to motherfucker. Answer it. <laughs> See tell him to call you back. Hey, I'm doing an interview. Bye. I don't know who that was. Oh well. <laughs> so I go on stage and Elvin is taking the nails out that he hammered on the floor of Royce Hall to keep his bass drum from sliding. Oh wow. Whoa. Uh, talk about strong. Yeah. And I'm I'm afraid to talk to him. Yeah. But then years later, after Coltrane died, I see him in another club and I bring him my first book, Riders on the Storm, real nervous that, you know, jazz is a higher art form and he'd be condescending. Yeah. And he'd never heard of the doors. Come on. <laughs> and 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 I said, Elvin, in here I wrote that you gave me my hands. And he was so gracious, and and then by the end of his life, if he was in town, I'd bring his, carry his drums to the car. Oh, know? really? You go see him wherever he was and help him out. Yeah, yeah. It's a harder life, isn't it? Jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you guys were kind of friends until he passed. Kinda. Yeah. Mentors. That's what I'm writing about. You know. Sure, I get it. But I mean, these guys. You know, it's interesting that you know the at the time that the doors were around, there was sort of a crashing of, you know, there was a a period there in the seventies, you know, in late sixties where you know, the generations were kind of mixing, you know, and you had the old timer rock and roll guys and you guys were yeah. the new wave, but you were kind of, sometimes you would do shows together or be around. Right. Yeah. And you know, uh, when did you meet Jerry Lee Lewis? Oh, well that was later. Yeah. That was interesting. Uh, we got big enough. So we thought we had the power to dictate the second act. Uh huh. So we were playing the Hollywood bowl and we said, and this is before Johnny Cash had a TV show. We said, well, Johnny Cash, uh, uh, I walked the line. And they said, we're not hiring a felon. Really? <laughs> I thought, okay. And we couldn't do it. But then we played the forum and we got Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, it, you know, we were pleased to tip the hat to the early 50s rockers. When the Doors played the forum, you guys, he, you know, he was an opening act? He opened... And he had been playing country music, and we warned him, you know, you got to play some of your hits. And, yeah. And, and, you know, the audience was going, Jim, Doors. Yeah. And he, he you know, cantankerous, he, he got up on the piano at the uh -huh. end, and he said, for those of you like me, God love you. For the rest of you, have a heart attack. <laughs> Did he play the hits, though? Did he play them? He played them. You know, yeah. he played with his feet. He slammed the piano. Yeah. You know. And did you cool. was he was he nice to you guys? He was. I mean, you know, they showed up without any instruments, which was rather odd. <laughs> can we can we borrow your drums? <laughs> sure. Really? Uh, uh and Robbie says, "Well, I got a lot of guitars. What kind do you want?" Jerry Lee says, "Any old Rockaday Fender guitar." <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh man, that's old school. Yeah. And he's still around too, man. He is. You know, he's 86 or so like Willie. Willie Nelson is my closing chapter and he's 86 or 7. Yeah. So this these guys are teachers for me to how to do this thing, you know. Sure. And what was your like I have a weird I had a weird encounter with Lou Reed, but it was just a fan encounter where uh you know, I had uh I went to get a record signed at a record store in Boston and he was signing records and I just really wanted to ask him like the right question. I knew I only had a second, you know, and I was, and he could cantankerous. Well, yeah, but I didn't, I just was like, you know, I get up there and I'm like, Hey Lou, what gauge pick do you use? You know, like that was my big question. And, <laughs> and he said, medium, man, you got to use a medium. And I've, you know, I used a medium for a few years, but, but it's just, yeah, he was cantankerous, but he was, uh, Definitely definitive. Why did you choose to put him in? You really do you have a lot of respect for his journey as well? Well, yeah. Uh, at first, I didn't get the uh, Velvet Underground. I no? saw them at the Whiskey, and you know, I was a, a West Coast, uh, not a Beach Boy maniac, but you know, they were dark, and yeah. Nico was singing. Yeah. Then I realized, oh wow, there's some power here in what they're up to, and 
and musicianship is, you know, sort of secondary. Yeah. And then he tune his guitar that ostrich sound and, and hit the guitar like a percussion instrument. I went, oh, this is different. This uh -huh. okay. There's some art to well, it. Really, really was fun. Uh, I met him just after he got back from Czechoslovakia, uh -huh. where Veslav Havel had him come over for an interview because he inspired uh, Havel's when he was in jail. Yeah. And and uh, Lou was really, you know, high from that. Yeah. Was, I got high just hearing the story, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's interesting that you've been in L.A. for so long, but you didn't mention, uh, you know, the, the Zappa scene. Did you not know Frank? Yeah, we knew Frank. We used to go over to his house for jam sessions. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Over in Laurel Canyon on the yeah. Wilson, Wilson on Wilson. Yep, 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 yep. But what was it like over there at that house? Oh, it was cool. Yeah. Uh, we, we played the blues. We played, you know, we talked with Frank about. He was into avant-garde stuff, which we knew about. So you guys uh, would sit around and he'd play like his strange uh, Italian art composers and stuff and do his... Uh... Somewhat. He mainly watched everybody jam and took uh -huh. notes. Oh, really? <laughs> huh. I mean, mental, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you guys, it seems to me that, y you know, that, that whatever the sound of the doors was, I was talking about it this morning to somebody because I knew I had to talk to you, is that... You know, people are like, well, the doors seem like there was a simplicity to it. And I'm like, yeah, but like you can't. The thing about the doors and what you guys did is that if you if you can hear one note of a song and know exactly who it is, you know, that that band is an authentic, real, you know, kind of uh, groundbreaking, you know, bunch of people. Like, you know, they, I think the simplicity of it was sort of disarming that like, you know, given Jim's darkness and his showmanship played against the kind of almost jovial rhythm uh, of some of the tunes, it kind of had this interesting balance. Well, I never heard that comment, simplicity, but what I, I think is uh, uh, what made us, uh, you know, when you, like Lou Reed, we, you, you, need, you need to get enough technique to get across your uniqueness, whatever the hell it is. Sure. You know, classical musicians are the most technical of all time. Right. And they get a little stiff sometimes. Right. Although Gustavo Dudamel, who I write about, yeah. ULA, he he's totally aware of salsa and Led Zeppelin and, of and that's why he's so fluid. Right. You know, I, I go backstage after and he says to me, Juan, uh, Gustav Mahler is heavy metal. Yeah, I can see <laughs> that. And he, you know, yeah. so when you're open to being fed by all this, you find your uniqueness. You just need enough technique. Maybe that's the simplicity part to get your thing across. And you can get stuck if you get too much technique. Right. You get, you become sort of this kind of uh, uh, a noodler, a guy that can play really well, but the feeling's not there. You're right. over let, let, me, let, me, let me show you all my shit. Right. And when you listen to Willie Nelson take a solo, there is space. What a great guitar it's, player. It, it's phrasing, which is what Gary Shandling is talking about, which is what Ron Doss is talking about. The, 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 the quieter you become, the more you hear. There's truth in that space. Yeah, is, is that the, like, what was it? What was the, your, you, you sort of riff a, a little bit about Gurdjieff. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, that's it. Well, you know, there was this uh, kind of uh, iconic underground book, Meetings with Remarkable Men. Yeah, I, remember, I tried to get into them, but I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't succeed. Yeah, it's difficult. And then there was a cult film made by Peter Brook. Terrence Stamp was the star. It was really eccentric, but interesting in that uh, all these men were searching, were musicians trying to play so well they catch God's ear. Oh. And I thought, oh, that's it. Meetings with remarkable musicians. I'll just right. use that. Right. Know? And uh, each chapter will be about uh, people who fed me. So Yeah, and it's like, they're not all musicians, though. I mean, uh, you, you know, I don't know what... You know the, what your relationship with with was with with uh, the poet Robert Bly, but he seemed to have a profound effect on you. What was that about? Well, I say remarkable musicians, Perrin, and other artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, he had a big effect on me, and I played drums while he read 
You know, I think poetry, well, I think writing is looking for music in between sentences, in a way. Phrasing again, space, and, and poetry is like the skeleton of language. It's really intense to try and get it so concise, you know. And what kind of time did you spend with that guy? Because he sort of led a movement for a little while there. He, yeah, uh, no, I was, uh, once again, same deal. I was in early. We were had these men's groups, and we were, you know, trying to break the mold of, of drinking beer and watching sports. So we were we were doing what women have done forever, talk to each other about feelings. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember Robert saying, you know, this ever becomes a movement, we're in trouble. Whoa, the <laughs> men's movement. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was just, we're just, we weren't dissing women. We were just trying to share our shit like that's done at AA meetings or whatever. Sure. And, yeah. And it was a really great thing. And it got so big. But I would say that it inspired the Million Man March and, and some good stuff. So it helped you personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? What were your role models like as a kid? You know, what was your old man like? Oh, he was behind the newspaper. Oh, really? Uh, that it, guy? Yeah, and my mom yak 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 all the time. Yeah, and you know, uh, twice a year, my dad would put the paper down and say, "Peggy, shut up!" And then back to the. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> but they were, you know, together forty years and dedicated and. I tried to do that route real hard. Uh, it wasn't my cards. Yeah. And like when you look back, at, like in terms of the work you've done, you know, start like, let's just, well, start with the doors. So you like in the doors, what do you think was your sort of peak moment where you, you almost got God's ear? Cause I mean, I listened to that. I love the fucking first live album and you know, wow. Yeah. Oh. That that thing, like, you know, to me, like, you know, I listen to the studio records, but the one, you know, with one in five and, you know, and, and I think the, uh, the end is on there as well. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that record is sort of like that. That was it. That fucking rocked hard for me. And it felt huh. like that you kind of got out there on that one. Huh? Well, we were still, you know, like people say, uh, what's the most exciting concert? Well, you know, the giant Madison Square Garden was mass adulation, and that was cool yeah. for what that is. Right. More exciting is the road up. Right. It's sort of like, wow, we're going to make a fucking living at this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of on that live record. We're still just, wow. Yeah, yeah. But you're drumming, like, you know, since you didn't really have a bass to work, you know, to play off of, I mean, you had Ray's foot. But like the rhythm section was you. So like, who who were you taking your cues from, Jim? <laughs> no, uh, from myself. But I mean, did you follow him? Like when you're doing the end and he's kind of riffing and going off and doing whatever the fuck he's doing. I mean, you were you, you must have been in some symbiotic trip with that. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, on the end, I'm I'm having that conversation with him, like I saw Coltrane have with Elvin. Yeah, but. Um, a bass player, a separate bass player, and a drummer, they work to keep the groove. Yeah. And so it was just me and Ray's left hand. And so it, when he would get excited playing a solo, he'd speed up. So I go, whoa, we've got to pull the reins back. <laughs> but without a bass, there was more space, more room for me to improvise. You know, keep my job. The yeah. beat is my job. Yeah. To to play off everybody and push them and right. dynamics is the whole deal yeah. for me. I'm not the fastest drummer, but once again, if you play <clears throat> pianissimo and fortissimo and everything in between, then you're getting a whole range of human emotions. And, right. And that's... That's where it is. You that's know? It. so yeah. So that that's the trick. Get it all. Get it, put it all into the thing. It's got all. Don't be do there. it all. Don't do it all at one level. All that's why metal is kind of tough for me. I, I need some silence after that. You know. Yeah. Like the the up and down ride. Yeah, and you talk to uh, in the you also talk to Ravi Shankar, which is like to me, like you know, it's like, I mean, I have the same type of ability to. Like, not everybody can listen to jazz. Not everybody can listen to 
raga, you know, and and like I love it. I love listening to to Shankar or any of the dudes that do the long form Indian stuff. I, I yeah. to me, it's like I can listen to that all day, and I find it completely compelling. What'd you take away from that guy? Trance, yeah, it's trance music. Yeah, you know? I, it's interesting how okay, the Fab Four and the Fab Doors, yeah, <laughs> were. Simultaneously, simultaneously experimenting with then legal LSD, and there's no internet here, and then somehow we get onto Maharishi. Well, I guess we were thinking, well, this is informative but shattering on our nervous system. Yoga is a calmer route, so we get into that, and and we get into that leads to Ravi Shankar and all of that, and yeah. so it's the same. You know, we had no communication with England much, but they were, uh, uh, sitar music was seeping into their right. stuff like us. Yeah. It's, it's the Jungian un, uh, archetypal undercurrents or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, the collective unconscious. It was just at that time there was an integration. That's interesting. So it was sort of a movement from LSD to Maharishi, and then all of a sudden sitar music is everywhere. That, that was the universal thread. Yeah, I think in that chapter, I, I say that uh, it got so popular that they started using sitar music for porn flicks, and uh, <laughs> Ravi tried to stop them, but he couldn't. So the soundtrack of God became, became the soundtrack of sex. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 yeah, it, it, somehow or another. And so, the, you know, like, I remember, I think Michael Bloomfield, in his, you know, desperation and late-stage addiction, was actually playing for some porn uh, soundtracks. Oh, shit. Well, you know, junkies will do anything, won't they? I ah. guess so, man. You must have seen a lot of that happen throughout the years. Oh, I mean, I don't know if, if he was a junkie, but I mean addiction. Yeah, know? no, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. It was pretty, I, I think he just, and that's that's just hearsay, but, you know, did heroin, did you feel the impact? Like, you know, when did heroin really start destroying the rock scene in L.A.? Here's the deal. Yeah. We're experimenting with then legal psychedelics and pot. Yeah. And you know, we're street scientists exploring yeah. our minds. Right. And then cocaine comes along. Right. Even Jim thought, wait a minute, what is that? That's like heroin. Isn't that some heavy shit? You're right. And then that becomes cool. And, you know, we dabble. Uh, I'm already hyper, so I don't, it doesn't do it for me. I'm right. going to go the other way. Right. And then the culture goes on to heroin. Oh, my God. It's just like, no, really? Oh, God. And that's when people started uh, course, dropping. Alcohol, alcohol took Jim out pretty much. So Right. Old school. <laughs> the legal drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what, was, what was Janice like when you hung out with her? Oh, Janice was really great in the beginning, real innocent. And, and then, you know, it, sad road for Janice because... She couldn't, I mean, you know, she had mass adulation and then went home alone and wasn't centered enough to cut pretty lonely and yeah. took the spirit in the bottle, mm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Or and then the needle. Yeah. So, yeah. Just, that's sad, huh? She was something it else. It is. And, you know, I, Jim and Janice were a couple of those people who have, uh, Addict, uh, creativity and and survival in one packet, addiction and creativity in one bag. Yeah, you know, right. Some people don't. Right. Picasso, Picasso lived in ninety. Right. So, you know, it's just as time goes on, I'm more and more grateful for what Jim and Janice gave us, and it was really hard being around them. I can imagine. It's uh, it's sometimes it's hard for me to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mark. Uh, right, what about you? Tell me about uh, all those. I suppose you what? know, like, who's some comedic mentors for you? Well, I think for me, like you know, it, it became as time went on, and I started to understand myself more about vulnerability. Really, uh, that you know, there was something about like you know Richard Pryor. You know, when yeah. he was able to, like you, you yeah. know, there was a rawness to his truth. So how do you get under the joke 
you know, into something that you know, actually speaks to the human condition in a way yeah. that's uh, vulnerable and raw. Uh, that's th- what I mean. Yeah. By being so fed by, you know, Lenny Bruce and Richard and, and sure. Chip and Alan, whatever. They're just trying to get at the very roots of it all. Yeah. And I think it's Lenny, true. Lenny was sort of like heady and, uh, you know, but but also a great observer of human foibles and and systemic foibles. But, you know, but Richard, there was some sort of real kind of Richard was fragile, man. And, you know, and, and he couldn't hide it. So he, yeah. you know, he wore his heart on his sleeve. So, you know, and he brought that and he brought himself to to yeah. to what he was doing in a way that I don't know that anyone's ever really done it before. I mean, anger's easy and being a clown is easy. But, you know, really kind of being vulnerable in, in humor is tricky. You mean uh, talking about lighting yourself on fire? Yeah, man. Right. Come on, Richard. Light, light yourself on fire. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you know, that took some balls, huh? To be a public, you know, to to make that kind of horrendous mistake, and uh, you know that horrible accident in the in the midst of all that darkness and addiction, and then get an hour and a half out of it. Good for him, man. Oh, geez. In your career, though, it seemed like after the doors, you kind of went on some different journey. I mean, I get like. I, it, there, there, there is a certain amount of humility and and egolessness and real creative uh, passion to to sort of pursue dance. I mean, what was that about? Well, I, I became a drummer for a dance company. Okay. <laughs> but what I realized, um, you know, it's not the goal of uh, the giant concert. It's it's the road there. Yeah. And so, I I've been doing a poetry and drumming hand drumming yeah in clubs and stuff uh, for years off and on and man if i have a good night and i feel that connection with the audience i'm as high as madison square garden i yeah. mean you know there's something there's a um it's sort of like if if it's a 40-piece orchestra or a duet that's one person on stage mm. And the audience, you know, Madison Square Garden or a club, that's the other person. And the two of you are going to dance tonight. Yeah. And mystery and magic is how's it going to go? Right. Is it going to be a salsa, a waltz, a punk? I mean, metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, that's what I'm missing so much now with the pandemic, just seeing live music and... The connection. It's it's really a big part of your life, huh? Well, uh... You know, I, I I became a writer 10, 20 years ago. And so I'm used to this sort of uh, monk-like thing. So I'm all right with it. Yeah. But I do miss the social. Yeah, human beings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, our tribe. Yeah. When did you, when did you first, how old, uh, where was Ram Dass and his wife when you, when you had the experience with him? Well, I was playing with his buddy Krishna Das. The two of them went to India in the sixties. Yeah. <laughs> gave, gave the guru LSD and the guru said, what else you got? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they went, this is our guy. Yeah. And so I was playing uh, percussion with Krishna Das and, um, the, the, and Ram Das came, and uh, I got to meet him, and then I got invited to his house. This was after he had the stroke, of course. Yeah. So uh, I had dinner with him, and uh, man, I got to say, the love vibe was palpable. Yeah. And I don't want to be corny, but man, oh man, wow. Yeah. You know, to be dealt the card of a stroke where you, you're – like Gary Snyder, the spaces, you know, that's yeah. how he, right. but he translated that as, okay, the listener's getting more in that silence than even if I was blah, blah, blahing, you know. Interesting. That's a, wow. So, and he had a real love vibe and he was in a wheelchair and it wasn't pretty. Well, that was sort of him. Like, I mean, you know, that his sort of process around, you know, you know, sort of moving towards, death and mortality and kind of uh making a a, a a sort of accepting mortality is his trip right so yeah, he yeah. so like i i guess that you know when you have a stroke like i just talked to michael j fox the other day 
because he's got oh. a, I've, he's got a book out, and it's, oh. it seems to me that the people that accept and you know build a relationship with their sickness or with their 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 liabilities, the people that befriend it and accept that this is going to be their partner. Uh, from here on out, for one way or another, are the people that are able to sort of stay in uh, a light uh, when it yeah. comes to life, you know? And that's a teaching for us. Right. Because, you know, we're, uh, you know, maybe our, our road is not as dramatic, but we got to yield. This aging makes you yield. Yeah. And it's hard sometimes, but... As George Harrison wrote, uh, some you know he knew he had cancer. Some days are quite sublime. Yeah. So. so. Yeah, and that's right, and that's in the midst of all this chaos and, and horror that we're dealing with now. When I'm out here right. sitting on my porch, this is the life right here, right now. You know, everything that's outside of me and everything I know that's going on that's horrible is not here right now. I'm having nice. a, I'm having a nice day. And no disrespect, uh, you know, and hopefully you and I don't get the virus. Yes. But uh, the earth, our footprint on the earth is lighter, and that's a, that's something to think about. Oh, you mean with everything stalled? Yeah, with everything bit. slow. I thought, yeah, I um, thought about that. Yeah, we're giving the earth a rest as we're all taking the hit. But, I mean, I guess maybe we had it coming. What uh, I talked to Patty Smith a couple of weeks ago, and she's lovely. You have a you had a nice time with her. Oh, oh, oh! God. She's the best, right? I mean, you know, she jump starts the whole punk thing. Yeah. Then she crosses over and writes a National Book Award book. Oh my God! You she's know, great. I'm a writer. Yeah. Wow, what a Renaissance woman, you know, and humble and. Uh, she's a real deal and, and, and she said I listened to a little of the interview that be- she's part of that lineage that beautiful thread from yeah. Beatnik Beatnik Burroughs and right. Ginsburg and her. it's sort of like the the hippies are on the shoulders of the beats right uh, the punks are on the shoulders of the hippies mm. the, the grunge is on the shoulders of the punks mm. And so it goes, you know, yeah. we're all kind of learning from each other. And you now let's talk a little bit about like um, in terms of like how you felt about how the Doors music was going to be used or allowed to use. What was your source of of angst about that? <clears throat> well, Mark, uh, <clears throat> it goes like this. Um, we are solicited to do. Come on, Buick, light my fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And we're kind of considering it. Jim's out of town. And he comes back and says, good idea, good idea. And I got to, you know, for a commercial, I'll go on television and I'll smash the car with a sledgehammer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's a no. Yeah. (laughs) And so I'm thinking, wow, he didn't write that song. He wrote one line. Our love become a funeral pyre, of course, Morrison-esque, right? Yeah. Uh, Who wrote that Robbie. song? Robbie wrote that song. Right. Robbie Krieger. And so, whoa, Jim cares about the whole catalog, all, everything we're doing here. So how can I break on through to a new deodorant? Right, right. Or uh, love me two times because I just took Viagra. Right. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. But up, uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, I've been Mr. Vito and got a lot of shit for it, uh, and now people have come around more. So, so it was basically protecting the legacy and, and honoring what you thought Jim's vision was and what you thought yeah, the creative yeah. vision of the band was, and you stuck by it because you didn't want to fucking sell it out to the point of suing my bandmates. Oh my god! Yeah. <gasps> That was so painful. I couldn't believe I did it. But because what, what, <laughs> what they were just seeing an easy payday, right, on some level? Yeah. 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 But, you, uh, I mean, they must have been doing okay. It's not like the doors. Yeah, you, uh, well, that that's what my question was. Okay. Well, I know it was hard. It was kind of like the Chappelle. What, what did he turn down? 50, 60 million right, or some right. shit? All right. So it got up to fifteen million for break on through to a, a Cadillac gas right. gas guzzling 
you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. mind you, after managers and splitting it all up, it'd only be a few million each. <laughs> but still, yeah. I said to uh, Ray and Robbie, okay, um, we all have a nice house and kind of a couple of groovy cars. What are you going to buy? What do you need? Yeah. Dot, dot. There was that space. Oh, dot, yeah. dot, dot. Yeah. The truth came in. There was uh, no answer. And I was like, so? Yeah. I'm going to veto. Right. And, and let me say this too, Mark. Important. Uh, this was way back. Yeah. And things got so hard. If a new band wanted to do a commercial to pay the rent, yeah. I get that. Sure. No. Yeah. But then again, if you get a toehold on success, maybe re-examine that decision and don't do it anymore. But in our case... Well, it was like, you know, the guy, you know, yeah, it would be on the grave of, of Jim Morrison. And these were iconic songs. It's one thing, you know, if you need to make ends meet and you do a commercial with yeah. a tune that, you know, maybe no one's even heard before. Or you want to sell a jingle, you know, but it's different where they're like, this song represented something. It, it was a big shift in thinking, like even with like... Um, like I, I, some for some people, it kind of like they used Iggy Pop's "Search and Destroy." I think for a Nike commercial, and I talked to the dude, uh, a, a music manager. He said that the guy who 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 used that song for that or got permission to use it didn't even know who Iggy was. He saw the title uh, on a, he saw the title uh, on a list of songs, and uh, then checked it out. But but oddly. You know, for Iggy, you know, it kind of like it, it, it kind of reinvigorated his career and he probably needed the bread because he doesn't have yeah, a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't. You but, don't. But, but when, when Nike backed up Colin Kaepernick, I, I'm not a, I don't wear sports gear. Yeah. But I went to Nike and bought a t shirt, you know. <laughs> know that's cool. <laughs> but um, uh, Pete Townsend, I quote in my second book, The Unhinged, yeah. the other point of view. Yeah, I say, oh, you know, people were in Vietnam getting fed by our songs or fell in love or first time they got high. We can't change the soundtrack to their life. And Pete Townsend says, I don't give a fuck if you fell in love with Shirley to my song. It's my song. I'll do what I want. Right, man. Right, man. <laughs> there you are. Yeah, yeah. It's like William Burroughs said to Patti Smith, you got to keep your name clean. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? But... Yeah. uh now, did you guys, did did everybody end on a good note? Like when Ray passed, were you okay? And we were strained. And I, I sent them the last chapter of the second book with a note saying, listen, this is going to be a hard pill to swallow. I want to make sure you got to this chapter. I say in here, how could I not love you guys? We, we, we created magic in a garage. And... Um, then when I heard Ray was getting really sick, I called him and thank God he picked the phone up. Nobody does that. Yeah. And, and we talked about his cancer and, and, and none of the legal shit, which was over. I won. But um, it felt good to hear his voice, you know? Yeah, I bet. It was, it was a closure. and I, I feel Jim and him even deeper now. Yeah, you know? yeah. You I can talk to him. Sure. What the fuck? Yeah, of course. You do you think about Jim uh, regularly? Uh, I have dreams about him occasionally. Oh yeah. I remember he told us this dream he had. Um, we're playing a big concert, and he goes back to the hotel room, and he's walking down the hall, and he hears a bunch of voices in his room. Yeah. And he looks at the key, and that's the right room, and he opens the door and there's a whole bunch of people in there partying and they look at him like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and that was the dream. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Pretty interesting. Huh? What did you dream about him? Uh, oh, I dreamt that uh, he was back. Yeah. He was clean and sober. He was in a, like an Armani suit. Wow. And he wanted to, and he wanted to play. <laughs> play music. <laughs> Like, he's he ready to go yeah yeah i guess like well, when you have is the time you guys had you know for the the amount of time you had it i i get i guess it's hard like those memories must be pretty amazing i mean i'm not saying that you know you don't have a life after that which you obviously do but you you the bond you create with guys that like you said you make magic that lasts forever uh you must be really something 
Well, I've had several marriages, Mark, but this one, <laughs> yeah. this one's gone on my whole life. Yeah. I think I was on uh, Charlie Rose. Remember him? Yeah. And uh, he liked this line. I said, uh, being in a band is polygamy without sex. You right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you guys are in it. Yeah. And how do you talk to Robbie? Occasionally. Yeah. You know, How's he doing? Is he all right? He played after the the legal hassle we finally played some music together at the at the county museum and it felt really sweet immediately it was like we were back really you guys yeah. it's so distinct it's so wild that you could just pick up after so many years and and you you lock right into it right yeah cuz you it's so in your blood that's you am- know, like, it's amazing to you me you can remember those songs and i mean gustavo dudamel conducts Without a manuscript. Yeah. Beethoven, all those symphonies are just in his friggin' head. Wow. How do you do that? It's crazy. You know? Yeah. Well, I saw it like I just like I had the moment where I was watching that uh, Above Us Only Sky, which was a documentary about, you know, John Lennon and the making of Imagine that, you know, the family had all this footage. It'd been around forever because I talked yeah, to I, think- I, I talked to Sean Lennon about it. And he said, yeah, he knew that footage because they had it. You know, they they oversaw the the putting together of that documentary. But there's a moment where, you know, John's out at that mansion and they're recording Imagine. And, you know, he has George come out to play on a few songs, right? And there's just a moment that they capture on camera where John's you know, on the piano and George is sitting there holding a guitar and John just looks at George and and and, you know, looks at him with that face like, you know, we understand each other on a level that, you know, no one else can even understand. And George immediately got it without anything being said and knew exactly what to do. And I was like, holy shit, that's amazing. Well, I mean, you know, if you work together a long time, um, it's kind of like a private club. Right. But, you know, with with much gratitude for all the fans. And, but, I, th- and, but, I, and I also think that a lot of people don't realize how many dates you guys fucking did. I mean, it's like you got these records, but you guys were on the road a lot, right? Yeah. that we, For six years straight, we were at it. You know? I mean, that's so many shows, so much places, so many. I mean, like, I always forget that. Like, people like Hendrix and you guys, it's like we hear the records, we hear the live record or two, but you guys did hundreds of dates, hundreds of dates. So it becomes intuitive. Right. You just, you go in that space. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And it, and, it, and then all of a sudden you're in it. It must be just a, a, elating most but, of the time. But you want to make it fresh, too. Yeah, yeah, Like man. Like in comedy, you, you know, just the phrasing of a joke. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, or, or it flops and then something happens that is hysterical. Right. Leave a little yeah. room, a little space. That's improvisation. Yeah, man. Which is jazz and that's the uh, that's the best my chapter on rays called improvisation so it's all connected sure man and it's like and that's those are the sometimes the best moments is that one you know that yeah. you know that few minutes you got out of it where it's like oh my god you know um getting older i don't have as much uh, technique drumming wise but i think i've learned that if you put the right cymbal crash in the right spot yeah it's as powerful as these big flurries I did in my twenties. Oh yeah, you know, same in comedy. I'm sure this sure. the right. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, it's 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 adjusting. Boom. It's evolving your timing. There's something more satisfying to that than you know than just the flurry. I mean, if you can yeah, fucking, yeah. if you can nail it with one beat, you're like, whoa. You know what I mean? Yielding, yielding. Yeah, man, yielding. Where'd you get that word? I got that from a cover of. Uh, a Pearl Jam album ah. called Yield. Oh, yeah? And, and and the bass player took the photograph of a Yield sign. Right. I thought, nah, nah, that's pretty hip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you like those guys? Oh, Eddie sang with us when we were inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. Yeah. I love that guy. Great singer, huh? Oh, my God. Those pipes from that little guy. Crazy. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> Well, hey, man, it was good talking to you, and I love the book, and I wish you the best of uh, success with it. And you seem healthy, so you'll be around a while. Yeah, really great connection. Yeah, man, it was fun. Take care of yourself. Same with you, man. Okay, buddy. Adios. That was John Densmore, old groovy guy, still groovy, still doing the thing, still being that guy from the old days. 
Uh, the book is called The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians and Other Artists. Here we go. Let's play some uh, Stratocaster. Straight in with the uh, built-in tremolo and echo on the vibraverb. Monkey and La Fonda live on. 